on this resurrection day, uh, we thought, one, that it was important to do that for us to just sit down and to hear the story in an extended fashion. And not only that, but one of the things that you see in each of the Gospels is the first people to hear and report about the resurrection are women. In the Gospel of John, it's them that go to the disciples who have their tails between their legs and they tell them, hey, Jesus told us to come and tell y'all. And guess what? He called y'all brothers. He didn't call you failures. What a gracious God that we serve. Let's pray. Father, uh, we come to you as those that are um, in desperate need of your grace, and we're thankful that you provide it in an abundance, Father. Uh, would you help us to rejoice in you, Father? Would you give us uh, grateful hearts, Lord? Because that's the only thing that will cure our forgetful minds. We ask that you give us grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and take your seat. wrong key will never unlock the right door. The wrong key will never unlock the right door. You know the feeling of being locked out of some place that you're trying to get into or locked in some place you're trying to get out of and you go through all your keys and you realize I don't have the right one. If you've ever been locked outside of your house when it's cold and rainy and you realize you don't have your keys. Or maybe you've been locked into a, a walk-in freezer at a job that you worked at and you found out there's no way for me to get out. I think that it's in being locked out or being locked in, um, you and I get a sense of what hopelessness feels like. Being hopeless is that feeling of being locked out of some place that you're trying to get into or locked in of some place you're trying to get out of and realizing that you don't have the right key. So the question that I want to ask you today is, what do you do when you're hopeless? Now, some of us are um, very optimistic in this room or we're scared of saying that we're actually hopeless because once we say it, we admit to ourselves that we are and we have to start to deal with it. So here's what I want to do. I want to give a brief definition of what hope is. Here's what hope is. Gene Kerr says this. Hope is the feeling that the feeling you have isn't permanent. That's what it is to hope. It's aimed not at what's here right now, but the future. It's the feeling that whatever frustrations I have right now are not going to be that way for ever. And so if that's hope, here's what hopelessness is. Hopelessness is this. It's the feeling that the feeling that you have right now is permanent. It will last forever. Pick an arena in your life. Maybe you're in a marriage right now and things are sour and you have this feeling on the inside. Things are never going to get better. That's hopelessness. Think of 
desiring friendship and commitment and feeling lonely and feeling like if people know the real you, that you're always going to be lonely. That's hopelessness. Maybe you're in here and you find yourself addicted. There's something that you've tried with all your resolve to break, but you keep on finding yourselves doing it again, even though you said you would never do it again. That's hopelessness. And it's not just in how we interact with people and one another. Hopelessness comes out often just even in the world that we live in. Think of being a black man in the U.S. right now. And you start to find out, so I can't walk at night with a hoodie. I can't have a taillight out. And now it seems like I can't even talk on my cell phone in the backyard without fearing for my life. Is it ever going to change? That's hopelessness. Being locked inside of a room you can't get out of, or locked outside of a place that you can't get in. So the question is, what do you do when you feel hopeless? How do you try to get out. I think we try to get out in at least one or two ways. One is we try to force ourselves out. We try to take life into our own hands. If your marriage doesn't make you happy, then leave. If your friendships make you unhappy, leave them. If your addiction, you can't get rid of it, then just embrace it and say that that's who you are. And so we're trying to force our way out of this hopelessness and leave our problems behind. What we quickly find out is that we can't leave our trouble behind because our problems have feet. And they have fast feet. And they chase us. Sometimes we think that we dodge trouble in this life and we'll say things like, man, I really dodged that bullet only to find out that you didn't dodge a bullet, you dodged a boomerang, and it's coming back. So then once you find out that you can't outrun trouble, you can't outrun hard times, and if your feeling of hope is based on, I don't have to sit with the feelings of frustration and trouble that I have right now, you quickly find out there's no such thing as a trouble-free life. So maybe you've even tried the church and tried... Christianity, or you grew up in a context where, especially on Easter Sunday, when everybody comes back into the church, folks you haven't seen wear a tie ever are wearing a tie. You know, everybody's dressed up all nice. And you start to find out that sometimes feels like a picture of what Christianity is. A bunch of broken, messed up people coming into the room, dressing it up, faking like they're okay. So maybe you aren't trying to force your way out of anything. Maybe you're just trying to fake like it's okay. So you deny that there's a problem or you settle in. Maybe my marriage isn't all that bad. I know folks that have it worse. Maybe it's not bad being this lonely. Maybe an addiction It's not that bad, but what you find out is that you can only fake joy for so long. 
and bitterness starts to bubble up. And what you quickly find out is that bitterness won't be bottled up any more than shaken soda in a bottle and the trouble of life loosens the top. Eventually, it's going to come out and make a mess of things. And after you've run out of people to blame, do you know who you are going to look to and be mad and frustrated at? God, for bringing all this trouble on you, even though you didn't ask for it. And that feeling of hopelessness, the question I want to ask is, how do you deal with hopelessness? What do you do when you find yourself locked in the room of hopelessness? What is the key to getting out if forcing your way out won't work and if faking your way through it won't work? That answer, like all our other answers, are found here in God's word. I think Luke 24 is all about that, the key to unlocking this door out of hopelessness. So the questions that I want to talk through today is what hope does Christianity give me when I'm locked in this room of hopelessness? Is there a key to get out? And I think that there is Luke 24. I'm going to set a little bit of the context and then we're going to dive in. Here's what takes place. The disciples find themselves trapped in a room of hopelessness. Jesus is constantly on their minds the way that a loved one is right after they die. Um, Three years ago this month, I lost my brother, and what I quickly found out is there would be days at a time that I would go, and because I knew he was okay, I wouldn't really think of him. But for the past three years, there has not been a day that's gone by that I have not thought of him. And it was the freshest in those days right after he passed. And you have a group of folks. Jesus passed on a Friday. The Sabbath started, so by their law, they couldn't work and take care of his body. So on a Sunday, they get up and go. And these women go out there, and they're the first ones there, and they want to care for Jesus' dead body. And angels come and appear to them and say, "Um, that's, that's sweet. I get your sentiment. But it's senseless because Jesus ain't here. They take this vision. They go back and they talk to the 11. And what you find out, and here's what I mean by being locked in the room of hopelessness. You can't get out. If you know anything about the Bible, you know Jesus had 12 disciples. But one of them cashed out. Judas was probably frustrated with walking and talking with a Jesus who had the power to make himself wealthy in this world, but chose the low road. So at the end, what he says to a group of guys is this, how much money will you give me in exchange for Jesus? He explicitly says things that you and I implicitly do all the time. He's convinced money is the answer, and he gets money, and then he, use, he tries to give it back. He, he can't give it back. So he buys a rope and hangs himself to show you and I money's never the answer. Then they go back to the rest of this group. Eleven people. And they tell them this good news. These women say, we went there to take care of his body. His body was not there. 
We didn't know what took place. And then angels came and they said he was alive. He got up from the grave, just like the scriptures had said. Remember, and they give them all these reasons to hope. And in verse 11, it says that the 11 read here with me. But these words seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the women. Here's what I mean by hopelessness locks us in a room. If you've ever had your hopes crushed and crashed down, you know how hard it is to hope again. You know how hard it is to even take a hint that things might go your way. You know how hard it is to put your trust back in that. And so you have this group of folks that are depressed, hopeless, even with words of empty tombs, angels singing, proclaiming that Christ is alive, they are depressed. Peter gets up and goes to the tomb, and it says that he's amazed, but do you know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say that he believes yet. A group of people that are hopeless. The reason why the Gospel of Luke ends this way is because as Luke was writing this letter, he wrote to a guy and his aim was, I want to make sure that you're certain. And so what he does is he paints a picture that this is a group of folks whose hopes have been crushed so much that this is not the type of group that's going to fake it. These disciples, the one that actually gave their lives for Jesus, started as a group of skeptics. They just wouldn't believe. And so I want to tell you, if you're here and you're a skeptic, you don't believe in Christ. You don't know what you feel about him. All of it feels too fanciful or too nice and neat or too good to be true. I want you to know you shouldn't feel condemned. You should feel like you're in good company. The Bible was written to people that were skeptical of a God that would die for their sins and not require any work on their part and then raise from the dead. The Bible is not just written for people like you. The Bible is written for you. So verse 13 starts off. Jesus gets up from the grave, and do you know what he he does? Jesus goes on a seven-mile hike. There are people that would say Jesus was crucified, but the reason why the tomb was empty was because he didn't really die, and he was healed, and he got up. And I love how Luke puts this in here. I'm 33 years old, and I can't play ball for two days in a row and get up and walk four miles. It is very unlikely that Jesus was crucified and nailed to a cross and got up three days later and said, let's go walking. But you have a group of people that are hopeless, arguing about what took place. And here's what I love about Jesus. Jesus finds hopeless people. Hopeless people don't find Jesus. Jesus finds them. So as they walk on this road, Jesus comes up, verse 15, and while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. Look, But they were prevented from recognizing him. Then he asked them, 
What is this dispute that you're having with each other as you are walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. Jesus finds them. He stops in. And the scriptures say that they were prevented from recognizing him. So this is not saying they were too involved, too intense in the argument that they had, that they just didn't know that it was Jesus. This is a passive verb, right? So it's what God's word calls a divine passive, something that God does to somebody. So it is Jesus ensuring that they don't know who he is, because if they know who he is, he's not going to get a chance to do what he wants to do. He's not going to be able to give them the key that helps them unlock the door of the hopelessness that they find themselves in. So we don't know what took place. He may have been in a trench coat, a fake mustache and glasses. We're not really sure. All that we know is he walked alongside them and they couldn't see him. And here's what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't just find people that are hopeless. Jesus exposes and surfaces their hopelessness. It doesn't say that they look discouraged until Jesus comes and asks this question. And here's what I love about questions in the Bible. From the very first question that God asked Adam and Eve, God never asks questions because he needs information. He knows everything. He asks questions so that what's inside of our hearts can come up. So Jesus comes in, and the first thing that he does, instead of cheering them up, is expose the fact that they're hopeless. And and when he says what things, he kind of plays dumb throughout this whole thing. They look at him and say, are you the only one? that hasn't been on Twitter in this past week and seen all of what went on. The irony of this is this. It is a group of people that are discouraged and voicing their discouragement to Jesus about the fact that Jesus is dead. They're discouraged Not because Jesus is dead. They're discouraged because of their unbelief. They're discouraged because they link God's faithfulness to their ability to comprehend God's faithfulness. They link their faithfulness to their, they link uh, God's faithfulness to their ability to see God's faithfulness. And if you do that, you will only and always be disappointed with Jesus because he often works behind the scenes. Jesus digs a little deeper when he goes on. And in verse 19, he says, what things? So now he's not just going to surface the fact that they're discouraged. He's going to surface why. And what he exposes is that their hopelessness, like ours, is often built on faulty hopes. They're hopeless, but the reason why they're hopeless is because the thing that they hoped in was faulty. The thing that they hoped in had a bad foundation. Look at what they say here. Verse 19, so, uh, so, so they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, 
who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. So as they're recounting the events, do you know what they stop with? Jesus' death. All of that stuff was factual, but then when they talk about how they feel, they don't go any further. They stop with his death and look at what they say. Look, but we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. What does that mean? It means that this was a group of folks who knew what it was like to be unjustly oppressed by a government that treated them as less than people. All of us sit back and talk about... Not us, but there are folks that would sit out and talk about Christianity as the tool of the white man used to oppress folks and all that. And you just read the Bible and you you find out that's not true. Christianity appealed not to people that were privileged, but to people that were persecuted. The disciples are two days away from their innocent friend unjustly being killed by the government, and there is no indictment in sight. They're sitting here, they're mad and upset, and what they said is, yo, we follow Jesus. And it's not like they went out trying to look for him. Jesus called them to follow him, and they thought this was going to be the guy that set things right in the world. He talked all this justice and love, and we expected him to give us political freedom, and he died. And our hopes died with him. Here's the first place hopelessness can come from. It can come from having the wrong expectations. Now when I say wrong, listen. The disciples, everybody that thought of Jesus as the Messiah was expecting him to liberate them politically and visibly. And you would sit back and say, well, John, is that too much to ask? And I would say, no, that's not too much to ask. But it is too little to ask. Their expectations aren't too high. Their expectations of Christ were too low. They expected him to set them free so that they could enjoy 60 years of life. Not knowing that even if they were free, but at odds with God, that an eternity of punishment awaits them. Jesus flips things and says, hey, I'm going to set you free eternally first. So the 60 years that you have here left may be full of trouble, but it's better this way. That is not to make us tame in the way we fight for justice in this world. That's not what this is about. It is to help you and I realize that we need to have the right expectations of Jesus. And and it's not that we expect too much from him. It's that we expect too little. If your hope is set on things that Jesus has never promised, you will only and always be disappointed with him. 
But that's not it. It's not just that their expectations were off or too low. It's that their assessment of themselves was too high. Look here in verse 20, um, the end of verse 21, it says this. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that, he, that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. Their assessment of themselves was too high because they judged the faithfulness of God, not based on what he said, but based on what it is that they could see. They connected Jesus' faithfulness, like we said before, to their awareness of his faithfulness. And in so doing, they were putting God himself on trial as if he was an ex-felon and they were his probation officer. I haven't seen it yet. Listen, I just want us to sit with this. Sometimes God does things that we can't see. Even if we can't see it, it doesn't mean God is any less faithful. This month, a year ago, my wife and I adopted our daughter. We got a phone call on a Saturday sitting right here in this room. There's some of y'all that are in here when, when we, we, we got the call that uh, we might be able to go and get her. Um, and on a Monday, we drove to the hospital and picked her up, sat with her uh, for three weeks. Well, this past week, my wife and I were flipping through pictures of, uh, on her phone, and they all had dates. Her sister had her second child three weeks before our daughter was born. So as we flip through this thing, we have pictures of Chandra holding her niece, sitting next to her nephew, a day before we got the phone call, and we remembered how we felt in that time. We sat and we felt like, is God ever going to answer our praise. Is he ever going to be faithful? Is he ever going to be good? I haven't seen it, so I don't know. Not knowing the whole while, while we're doubting God's faithfulness, our daughter had already been born, and not just born, she was premature, so, so she came out early. All the while, they're doubting that Jesus actually did what he said that, they, that he, he would do. It's already the, the third day, not knowing that Jesus already came out of the grave early and had time to go to the store and buy a costume so that they wouldn't know it was him when he was there. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean God hasn't done it. And if you judge God's faithfulness based on what you see, you're going to be disappointed because God doesn't work on our timelines, nor does he work within our sight lines. Jesus exposes their hopelessness. Jesus exposes their hope for political freedom in the life that they lived in at that time 
their hope may have actually died with Jesus. But Jesus says, it's a good thing for false hopes to really die. It's the demolition of a condemned building before a solid structure gets built back up. And here's what Jesus does. After he tears down their false hopes, like he does with all of us, he builds back up their right hopes and he shows that he is in fact the key to unlocking the door out of hopelessness into joy. Remembering Jesus, his death and his resurrection is the key to unlock the door out of the hopelessness that you and I face, whatever it is, and find our way into joy. Look, look at what he says here, verse 25. He said to them, how foolish and slow you are to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He looks at them and says, y'all are, y'all are foolish. Y'all are slow to believe. Look, all of what the prophets have spoken, they looked at him, and as they recounted the current events, they called him a prophet. And Jesus says, y'all are slow. Y'all don't even know what the prophets are for. Jesus' rebuke to them is not that they're not up on the current events that take place. They're up on that. Jesus' rebuke is, y'all are up on the current events, but y'all don't know your Bibles. So the reason why you're hopeless is because the Bible tells about me and all the stuff that I went through, and y'all are up on everything that goes on. Matthew the tax collector. He's on Fox News because that's where he aligns. Simon the Zealot, he's on CNN. And Peter's on BuzzFeed. And you just have all of these folks look, that are up on all of this stuff. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 there's nothing wrong with that. But y'all are hopeless because y'all have missed out on the fact that this Bible is all about me. 26. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? That is a rhetorical question. Not meant to ask anything, but to make a point. Jesus is saying, yo, if you knew what the prophets had said, then you would have known that the suffering that Christ went through, his death was not an accident. It was always an appointment. Be surprised by an accident, but don't be surprised by an appointment. Every night we put our daughter to bed, she acts like it's the first time. And I say, there's a lot of things that you can be surprised about, but we are getting ready to come up on the 365th anniversary of bedtime. Don't be shocked. You knew it's coming. Jesus says to to this group, look, wasn't it? Necessary that the Son of Man, the Messiah, would suffer all of these things and enter into glory. What he's saying is you go through the Bible and what you find out, God's pattern has always been the cross comes before the crown. Nobody gets the crown without the cross. God is going to send a deliverer into the world. But that deliverer is going to face distress. He's going to deliver people from their distress 
by facing distress of his own. He's not going to call out from the lifeguard chair, get your act together for people in shark infested water. But he is going to derobe himself of glory and deity and dive into the pool. And take the bite so that he can throw us out. And then on this seven mile journey, it says this. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures, which means everything. What he's saying is, y'all are distressed because y'all aren't reading your Bibles. And even when you are reading your Bibles, you're reading them wrong. You are looking for something that directly applies to you or the circumstance that you are in. But he's saying that's not how this book was built. This book was made to point to me. And now, after you've seen how it relates to me, that you see how it relates to you. And so on a seven mile journey, here's what he does. I'm going to do my best to try to do a quick reenactment of what he does. He starts off with Adam. And he says, do you remember that story of this one man who infected everybody else that as a result of what he did, everybody that was born from him is like him? What he's saying is that story is not about Adam. It's about Jesus who would come into the world. And because of his one act of obedience, everybody that is born from him would be like him. So if you come into the world and see how messed up this world is because of the one sin of Adam that snowballed into an avalanche, how much more the act of obedience in Christ will avalanche into glory. Then he goes on and says, do you remember in Genesis 2.18 when God looked at Adam and says it's not good for the man to be alone? That was not about Eve. It was that God had always planned that he would reveal himself to humanity through another human of which Jesus comes in and fulfills that. The lamb slain before the foundation of the world. God was not shocked that Adam and Eve fell. He already had a plan to set things right. God is not surprised by your sin in the way that you are surprised by your sin. He already has a remedy to fix it. Genesis 3.15, when it talks about this seed will come into the world and he's going to crush the head of the snake, but the snake is going to strike his heel. That Jesus is going to come uncoerced by anybody sent into the world to defeat Satan, the deceiver of our souls, once and for all. But in the process, it's going to cause him distress. He's going to experience the worst kind of distress that would keep anybody paralyzed, and that's death, but he would get up from that death. Then he said, Abel, do you remember him? Righteous, did things right, and because somebody else, in the context of worship, saw God's favor on him, what he did is he said, hey, let's have a church picnic, and he goes and he kills him and comes back with Red blood on his hands. And what God says is that Cain, your brother's blood, cries out for justice. And Jesus said, that wasn't about two brothers. That was about me. 
I'm going to be the innocent brother that was slain, die, but my blood is not going to cry out for justice. It's going to cry out for mercy. Abraham and Isaac, the first time love is mentioned in your Bible is Genesis chapter 22 when God looks at Abraham and says, take your son, your only son, whom you love and sacrifice him. Abraham is getting ready to, but God spares his son, gives him a ram in the bush. Jesus says that ain't about Abraham and Isaac. That's about me. God. I was God's son, but God didn't spare me. And you keep on going on and on and on. Joseph sold for 20 pieces of silvers by his brother, was as good as dead in the bottom of a pit. And do you know what? In one day he goes from the pit to the throne. And do you know who he saves? The very people that sold him into slavery. Moses comes in, saves a people from bondage, crosses the Red Sea on dry land. Then he feeds grumbling people bread. Jesus comes in and in John 6, in the same day, says, I'm going to do one better. Moses gave y'all bread and y'all cried out because you didn't have meat. Yo, I gave y'all bread and fish. I, 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 uh, I gave y'all air. Catfish po' boys and everybody out here, right, they love it. And I'm not just going to walk on dry ground. I'm going to walk on water. Take that, Moses. The Passover. God's righteous judgment is going to kill people that have offended him and mocked him. Except for a group of people that put their trust in him and slay a lamb and put his blood on the doorpost and on the top. And causes them to pass over. Jesus says the Passover was all about me and the work that I was going to do for you. The sacrificial system in the book of Leviticus. The book that you and I skip when we're reading through the Bible in a year. There's a concept called a scapegoat. Do you know what a scapegoat was? Where it comes from? It comes from this goat that people would lay their hands on. And symbolically put their sins on them and then cast them out. Jesus said, I'm the scapegoat. I'm the one that took the sins of all the world, everybody, and I was cast out. The temple, the very place that people went to meet with God, Jesus says, I'm the temple. It's not about a building. The building was about me, David, sent to face a giant that nobody else could take with an unlikely weapon, kills this giant in one blow. Jesus says, that's not about David. That's about me. I face this giant of death with an unlikely weapon, my own death. I killed him and I uh, provided freedom for all of God's people. Jonah, buried in a whale underneath the earth for three days, gets up out of the whale, preaches repentance and judgment to a group of people that were undeserving. And do you know what they do? They turn and they get saved. Samson had a miraculous birth. Lived a life of faithlessness towards God. And then the end of his story says this, and in Samson's death, he killed more Philistines than in his life. Jesus says that was not a story about some strong man. That was a story about me. I killed more in my death than I did in my life. And he keeps going so that people would get it. 
And he's on a seven mile journey. It takes people an average of 15 minutes to walk one mile. So considering they didn't stop their pace and they kept on walking, he went on for over two hours. And I would do the same thing, but we have a lot of guests and I want y'all to come back next week. So I'm trying to keep my time, but know that we can keep going. And his point is God, God has never saved anybody from standing in the lifeguard chair shouting out that they would come back. God always saves through sending somebody to be broken so that you wouldn't have to if you feel broken and you feel hopeless and you feel like there's no way out. Remembering what Jesus did on the cross, his death and his resurrection is the key that unlocks us out of this room of hopelessness into joy. The Bible is a book for us. The Bible is not a book about us. The Bible is a book about Jesus. The Bible is a window. It's not a mirror. It's not meant for you and I to see things about ourselves. It's meant for you and I to look and to see a glorious Savior. J.C. Ryle says this, Jesus is the central sun of the whole book. So long as we keep him in view, we shall never greatly err in search of our spiritual knowledge. But once we lose sight of Christ, we shall find the whole Bible dark and full of problems. The key of Bible knowledge is Jesus Christ. Read the Bible, look at the failures, look at the Peters, look at the Judases, look at Joseph's brothers, look at the lot who traded in their commitment for greener pastures. Look at the Israelites who complain all after God's bondage and freedom. And do you know what you'll see? You'll see us. You'll see your own heart in them. But what you see is a God that graciously chooses to save even them. Jesus keeps on playing dumb. Look here at verse 28. They came near to the village where they were going. And he gave them the impression that he, were go, that he was going to go farther. So he knew that, 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 that they were feeling all of what he had to say. And he's like, hey, y'all, I'm going to keep on walking. And, and they look and they entreat him. They say, nah, stay. It's late. It's dangerous on the road. Please stay. Give us more. And I feel like Jesus cements this teaching. In the breaking of bread. And it says this. It was as he reclined. At the table. Look. What I love is that when Jesus rose from the dead. He didn't call a press conference. He didn't go back to the hill where he fed the 5,000. He proclaimed himself in living rooms. And he took the bread. Blessed. And broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were open and they recognized him. But he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us. Here's what I love about what takes place. 
that he's sitting there and at this meal and what he's done so many times before, in that order, he takes this bread, he blesses this bread, and it's only after this bread is broken that it's useful for anybody else to take. And it clicks. This is what God does. God takes. God blesses. And we think that we think that we're going to be okay. We think that we have all of what we need. We can walk with him for three and a half years and think that we're climbing a mountain to the top. And then he breaks. Our hopes are crushed. Ah, but it's after he breaks that he uses. Suffering is not the end of the story. Hard times, trouble is not the end of the story. Jesus got up from the grave so that you and I would know that death, that the grave, that the tomb for him is not the destination. It's just a necessary pit stop en route to the destination. Judas sold out Jesus. Judas, in a sense, did what we've all done. Judas was so hopeless that he got a rope, hung himself, and died for his sins, not knowing that that was what Jesus was prepared to do. Judas is in hell right now, still paying for his sins. There is no end to that. He sinned against an eternal God and punishments are dished out, not based on just what you do, but who you do it to. If I punch Richard, which I wouldn't, but if I did, and I punched the president of the United States, which I wouldn't. What I would find... <laughs> that pause was for me to make a point, not to make a political statement. The same action would get me a different penalty. It has nothing to do with how bad my action was but it has everything to do with who I did that action to. Judas is in hell for an eternity because he still owed, he still has to make payments on that sin. Jesus got up from the grave because God said I accept that payment and it's not just good for you Jesus, it's good for anybody else that will come in and put their trust in you. So if you're here right now and you feel like I want to know this God, I don't want to be gripped by this hopelessness, I want you to know Jesus has made the payment. You don't have to. That's the good news of the gospel. Listen. After a long day's journey, they realized Jesus rose from the grave and he is alive. They just told him to come inside the house because it's not safe to travel back down this road. But look at verse 33. That very hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the 11 and those with them 
already gathered together, who said, The Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. Then they began to describe what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of bread. Knowing that Jesus rose from the dead, it doesn't just change how you and I relate to him. It changes how we relate to everybody else. I remember being in a preaching class in school and they said, your sermon is no good if it doesn't make a difference in people's hearts on Monday morning. I'm going to take it a step further and I'm going to say that if the resurrection is really true and we really believe that, then there are some people that you know and this news can't wait until morning. This news cannot wait until tomorrow. Everybody that actually believes that Jesus actually got up from the grave has people to tell and convince of this truth. And they go back and they tell with renewed energy. They turn back up and make a seven mile trip back. I live less than a mile from the church and I don't like to come back if I left stuff here at work. They get up and they go. There's this renewed strength. And I love how this part ends. That by the time they come back, it says this, the Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon Peter. At the beginning of this story, Peter runs to the grave, going to find Jesus, likely sorrowful. The last instance that we see of Peter and Jesus standing eye to eye that we see in the Gospels is after Peter denies him three times. It says he catches a glimpse of Christ's eye. He hears the rooster crow and he leaves out. And the next thing that he knows, Jesus is dead. So I can imagine he would run to the tomb that morning to apologize, to tell Jesus that he's sorry for all of what he's done. And do you know what? He doesn't find Jesus, but Jesus finds him. I don't know how you, I don't know if you feel like I've done too much. I'm far, I'm broken. There's nothing that I can do to pay for my sins. I would say you're absolutely right. That shouldn't make you hopeless. It should make you as one filled with hope. I'm closing, but I just want us to hear this. You and I have a tendency to forget what God has done. We are broken vessels that leak. Do you know what Jesus gives us, Christians, the church, to remember his goodness towards us? He doesn't give us flashcards to rehearse facts. He gives us a community of people, a family to worship. The cure for a forgetful mind is a grateful heart. You don't forget the things that you love. You remember meeting your spouse for the first time and you knew that you wouldn't forget their name. So what he does is he gets a group of folks together and the gospel of Luke ends with an empty tomb. Jesus ascending to heaven, reminding us that our destiny is upward. It's not down there. And then it leads right into the book of Acts where the very first thing you do is you see a church constantly coming together to gather. Being a part
part of a church, a community of faith, is being a part of a family that together comes to worship our Lord. Easter is a great day that we all can come out. Yes, but the reason why the church changed their day of worship from Saturday to Sunday is so that Every week we would come and be reminded Jesus got up from the grave. So whatever things we feel like make us hopeless, we are reminded as we come and gather and not just hear God's word taught, but as we come and gather and sing and remind one another and talk about what Christ has done. We're reminded that regardless of the trouble that comes to face us, we have the key that unlocks the door out of hopelessness into joy. Our destiny will be the same as Christ's. Let's be reminded of that truth. Let's do that in here. Let's spend all of our time, regardless of where we are, in homes and around meals and at games and when we rise and when we sit down and when we go to sleep, let's be reminded. Hopelessness is a common experience for all but it does not have to be the consistent experience for us. Where is your hope? If it's in anything but Jesus and what he's done, it will come crashing down. But that's a good thing. Because at the bottom, we find a savior that didn't just sit back and tell us to get our act right. At the bottom, we find a Savior who himself dove headfirst into the distress that we go through for our good and for God's glory. Let's pray. Father, again, we come to you and uh, we ask that you would fill us with hope. Lord, would you fill us with grace? Would You remind us that the most important reality, the climax of human history, is that you sent your son to pay for our sins through death. But he didn't stay dead. Would you remind us that because of what he's done, we will share the destiny um, uh, that he has, Father. Uh, Give us grace to remember. Give us grace to have grateful hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.